0: This morning, we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify god in the day of visitation submit yourselves for the lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right for such is the will of god that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bondslaves of god honor all people Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also f- suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continuously straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we saw that we as believers are being built into the very dwelling place of God, that we are there, that we are part of The sanctuary, God meets within us because he dwells in us. Not only that, it said there that in the first part of chapter 2, that we were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him to everyone for all eternity. He's called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. And we pick up there today in verse 11 where it tells us, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. In other words, these men and women who'd been scattered, they lived in all sorts of places. Go through and read those seven churches of Revelation that are scattered across what was then known as Asia Minor. Some of them are, were living under pretty terrible conditions. It was a hard time to be alive for a lot of believers for, for instance, in one of the churches, it said, I know that you dwell there where Satan lives. How would you like that to be described in your hometown, right? These guys are coming in from Waynesboro today, and, and how would you like it if your hometown was that place where Satan dwells? And uh, Daniel, I don't want any comments out of you about that. <laughs> but listen, it was a hard time, and so they were scattered abroad. And what he's telling them, listen, I want you to watch your behavior in other words, I want you to do abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And then verse 12 said this Keep your, your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here's what that means, okay? You live among a lost people, they still live in darkness. You need to watch your behavior because they're going to slander you. That is, they're going to accuse you of all sorts of things that are not true. But you need to make sure those accusations are not true. So, as we begin to think about that, Satan is the the accuser, according to Scripture, isn't he? And the people that are still in the kingdom of darkness, as we all once were, they go about his business. And part of that is these unfounded accusations. I said this morning, listen, right now with... With everything that's happening with Roe versus Wade, there's accusations being made against people like you and I. And we need to make sure that those things are not true. People are gonna say, Well, you guys just hate women. And you know what? We need to make sure we don't do that. We need to make sure that we are truthful and how we and careful with how we handle the scripture and how we treat the women in our church how we treat the women according to the scriptures. But it's not just that. They're going to say, you're racist. And guess what that means? We better not be racist, right? That according to the scripture, uh, we're all just one people. And we need to make sure that we live accordingly because they're watching. And it said that very clearly here. What What we need to do is this. Keep your behavior excellent among them so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, there's a day coming when Christ is coming back. There is a judgment to come. And I sure would, like the people that are in darkness around us, to at that point be glorifying God, not bowing the knee because they have to, but because they choose to. In other words, you know, a lot of people say, well, we really don't do evangelism with words. Right? We talk about lifestyle evangelism. And we talk about, well, we don't do evangelism with words, and and I shouldn't just have to tell somebody. I just want to be a good person, and they're going to see that. Listen, I don't think that's scriptural, but if you're going to go to a a place in the Scripture and look for something like that, this is it. In other words, just saying, I want them to see your behavior, that you're doing right. And so in the end, they have to give glory to God for what you are doing and who you are and your integrity. And we want them to see that. Now, are they ever going to get the perfect example out of us? They're certainly not. They're certainly not. Because I know myself, there's things I'm going to fill in. And, and uh, I just listened to Sunday school this morning, so I know that uh, we all have problems. And we need to be careful with that. But at the same time, the world is watching what we do, they're watching our behavior. And so this tells us we need to watch our behavior. Verse 13 begins to kind of switch, though, and changes subjects just a little. But keep that in mind. Keep this in mind. We don't want to be slanderers, evildoers. We want to do right. But verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Right here, it says that, the, that we are to place ourselves voluntarily under the authority of the king or the governors or those who come under his power. Now, if you're a little bit like me, and you probably are, I might inst- instantly, I'm going, well, how far does that go, right? Because I don't, I don't want to obey the government on everything. And immediately taxes come into mind, and we're all thinking, well, how much money do, can they take from me, right? And how can I get out of it? And we begin to have all sorts of thoughts just about government and bigger issues with government, right? Right now we're seeing that uh, for once it seems like something kind of went our way with government, with Roe versus Wade. But how often does it go our way? A lot of times it doesn't, does it? And so we have to, it says here, we have to voluntarily place ourselves under every human institution, whether it's a king or the governors or in our case, we live here in the United States of America. And so we're told to do this, and in, right now some of us, we're, we're kind of cringing again because it's, we had this idea built up that, well, is government good? Do we want a big government? And we have all sorts of different philosophies and thoughts by that. But why does it say in the text, what's the reason it gives us to voluntarily place ourselves in submission to the government? It says, for the Lord's sake. Because the Lord is the one giving the command, and he's asking us to do this. Church, we're not anarchists. That is, we don't think that the world functions best without government. And uh, while some of us may, I think we have to wrestle with Scripture if we're going to try to get to that idea. So we need to wrestle with the text. What does it tell us here? We are to submit every human institution to the king. But notice in verse 14 what it describes They're sent here by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You know, scripturally, God has ordained that we would have a government over us. And providentially, we happen to have a government over us right now. And that's part of God's plan for this world. And you know why that is? It is to be a restraint on evil. Sinful human nature says, listen, wars happen all sorts of atrocities happen, bad things happen. Government is in some ways a grace for us that is supposed to be good for us because it is supposed to restrain evil in some way. In other words, if my neighbor or somebody gets angry and they decide to murder someone, I want there to be some fear in their hearts before they do it that, hey, if I do this, I'll get punished. And I actually want them to get punished if they carry it out. And that comes in part from the government. Listen, to, This is Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 if you want to turn there. It's Romans 13. Hear what it says about government. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which, exi- which are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, to tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Church, we hear that, and again, we're not anarchists. In some ways, God's ordained of government, again, is a grace to us that it said that, that we were to be in subjection to it because God has providentially allowed them to be there. He's placed them in authority. Now, lots of questions come up in my mind when I read this text, and scholars are all over the place on this, and we can't solve this problem today, but I just want to get you thinking. We have a, a holiday coming up, right, next week, July 4th, and what are we celebrating on that day? The Declaration of Independence, a revolution, and people have been asking ever since, was the American Revolution justified by scripture, or was it not? In other words, did they have a right to revolt and separate, and and scholars are all over the place. Many scholars, I looked up a few this week, uh, John MacArthur, some others, say that, guess what, the Revolutionary War, that was sinful, we shouldn't have done it. Because the Bible says to live under the authority of the government. Other scholars look at this and go, well, they weren't rebelling against the idea of government altogether, and we were just moving from this government to another one, and so it was justified. Now, we can't go through all that. that would be a great thing, I think, for like a Sunday night kind of Bible study or class where we could go into detail on those kind of issues and see what other people have written. We can't answer that all today. But here's what I know. We're not anarchists. I want a government... That mostly leaves me alone, but I also want a government that puts a restraint on evil, and it's a good thing. It says concerning taxes, taxes, customs, fear, and honor, to give it to whom it's due. And it says not to do it for our sake, but for the Lord. You know, anything we do, we're supposed to do it as though we're serving Him. If we have a job that we don't like, don't we tell people, well, do your job as though you're serving the Lord. Isn't that the way we kind of present things? Well, it's the same thing with government. We place ourselves under the authority. We give up some of the rights that we feel like we have. And listen, as Americans, we've all been raised to cling to those rights. It's built into the very DNA of our country. And sometimes what God asks us to do is to, in a measured way, put those rights down. So we have to re- reconcile with that. Here's what I also want to say before we move on pray for the government. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You guys hear that? We pray for the government. We submit to the government. We prayed for them. You know what we want out of that? To live a life that is quiet and tranquil, peaceful, and with all dignity. We want to be able to live... Our Christian life, according to the values found in the scripture, we want to be able to live that way with dignity and in peace. And we want a government that allows us to do that. And so we continue to pray for the nation's leaders, not just in D.C., but uh, on the local level as well. We need to be involved in praying. One thing, I think it, one thing I think it means when it says submit ourselves to the authority of the government is be the best citizen you can be. And I've said that from here before, and I'm going to say it again. As far as we can as Christians, we need to follow the laws of the land. When those laws call us to sin, that's a different story. And I think we'll discover that as we read through the scripture. We, all it takes is looking back at the book of Daniel. There were certain things that they would not do because it would have been sin for them to follow the laws of the land. But it's the same thing for us. Everything else... Sometimes if it's just our rights, we just get our feelings hurt, we just don't like it. Well, sometimes the scripture says, you know what, you got to do it anyway. Be the best citizen you can be. But also, we live in a beautiful time in many ways. We have a system of government that we can participate in. And so as submitting to the government, we can speak out. We can vote. We can take part in our local government. We can be active. We can do all those things. And so I encourage you... To do so. Be the best citizen you can be of this nation. Now look down at the text. We're back in First Peter chapter two. In verse 15, it says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You know what I hear out of that? You know who my king really is? It's God. Our king is Jesus, and there's freedoms where we could say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this government. I don't want to go that way. Jesus didn't command me to do that, and sometimes we begin to think that way, and he's still saying, you know what, I want you to do what's right, because they're going to make accusations, and I want you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is right. When they Listen, this is one thing that's really been bothering me all week, right? Roe versus Wade is overturned, and I'm reading uh, a friend of mine. She works with a, a, one of these uh, pregnancy help centers. I cannot think of the word right now. Was that? Yeah, a crisis pregnancy center. There you go. Uh, out in Arkansas. And she's posting, hey, church, here's some things you need to do right now to begin helping this, right? Because there are active steps we can take. And someone begins posting on there a a story of, of abuse, of how she was abused at a church in her young days. And because of that, she wants nothing to do with a crisis pregnancy center that might be any way associated with any religion. And you begin to hear it, and here's what I understand from that. That lady was hurt and is lost by her own words. And you know why? Because somebody, when they made that accusation, it was true they did it we need to be those that would live with integrity and not do those things and I, I think about all that's going on in the SBC in recent days and and I come back to this verse and it says silence the ignorance of foolish men by doing what is right and I think man there's times where we've missed that and we need to make sure that we're walking in holiness what did we say last week right we're studying in Proverbs chapter three last week we We took a week off from 1 Peter. And you know what that said? If you would hold these instructions in our heart, if we would keep his commandments, there's life and healing as we walk with God, as we follow him. That's what our society needs. And so we need to silence their ignorance by doing what is right. If they accuse us, again, of all these things, let them not be true. In verse 18, actually, let me stop there for a moment. What kind of things do we get accused of today? We've already talked about some of them, bigotry, hatred, we're patriarchal, we, we hate women. Um, we could just go on and on and on about the things that our society teaches us. We're anti-science, right? All kind of things that they say are true, that are true about us. I was thinking, what happened back in the ancient times when this was written? What kind of things were Christians being accused of? Let me give you a few. These are coming from some historical stuff I'll read you in just a minute. But you know what the number one complaint was in the Roman Empire for Christians? They're atheists. Is that true? For the Romans it was, because if you didn't agree or believe in the Roman pantheon of gods, they'd have considered you an atheist. Now Jews, because of a prior arrangement, they had special circumstances where they were allowed to practice their religion, But for everybody else, that was a big deal for you to say, I don't believe in your gods. And so when Christians would come up and say, hey, I don't believe in those gods, and I'm not going to worship that, they were accused of being atheists. wasn't true, but they were accused of it. After that, they were accused of cannibalism. And you're all wondering, why in the world were early Christians accused of cannibalism? And you already know the answer. Because you think about the Lord's Supper, you think of what we do, and we say, hey, this is, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And we eat the bread and we drink the cup. And all that, I mean, even Jesus, listen to what he said in John six fifty three through 56. Jesus said to them, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day.'" For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. We've got that in the scripture, right? And we know that there's a symbol behind this and a ceremony that we follow to teach us that Jesus' body was indeed broken on the cross for us and that his blood was poured out as payment for our sin. But did the Romans understand that? This is just this new fledgling cult group in their mind that's popping up And they're just checking it out, like, well, what do we do with this? I mean, how do we handle it? So they were accused of cannibalism. Next, they were accused of meeting in secret and having secret societies. Well, were they? I don't know. We'll we'll get to that in just a minute. You know what the punishment was for all these accusations? Death. Every time. I want to read you just for a moment here. This, is, uh, this book is called The Early Christians, and I've had this book since I graduated from high school. I was just telling them uh, my high school uh, history teacher gave this book to me when I graduated, and I was looking through it this week because it's a great place to go and see what some of the early Christians, or what was going on in this time. I want to read you part of a letter, and this is from a governor in Asia Minor. This is a guy named Pliny, Pliny the Younger, he was writing to Emperor Trajan, and he was given the job of going to investigate and figure out who these Christians were and what they were doing. I want you to hear what he says. It's a little long, so bear with me. It says it is my custom, sire, to report to you everything about which I am in doubt. For who could better guide my uncertainty or instruct my ignorance? I've never been present in trials of Christians, therefore I do not know how much to punish or to investigate. I am also very unsure whether age should make any difference or whether those who are of tender age should be treated just the same as the more robust, whether those who repent should be pardoned or whether one who has once been a Christian shall gain nothing by having ceased to be one. Finally, whether the name of Christian is such should be punished, even if there is no crime, or whether only the crimes attributed to this name should be punished. You hear he's asking questions to the emperor. How do I handle these new people? Meanwhile, I have followed this procedure. And those who were denounced to me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians. If they confessed, I repeated the questions a second and third time. And moreover, under threat of, death, of the death penalty. If they persisted, I had them led away to their death. For I had no doubt that whatever it was they confessed, their stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy certainly deserved to be punished. There were several, several others, Roman citizens, who showed the same madness. And I noted them to be sent to the city. As often happens during legal investigations, the crime became more widespread and there were some particular incidents. An anonymous accusation was presented denouncing a large number of persons by name. I felt that I should acquit those who denied that they were or had been Christians if they followed my example and called upon the gods. If they offered before your image incense and wine, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, with the statues of the gods. And if they reviled Christ besides. You guys hear that? He calls them in he says, I had decided... A lot of people were accused, and I decided to put them to the test. And they put up an image or a statue to the emperor, and you were supposed to pour out wine and make a sacrifice to him, as, as well as in front of the other gods. And then they were supposed to speak ill of Christ and deny him. And he comes and he says, "'It is said that those who are really Christians cannot be compelled to do any of these things in any circumstances. Others whose names have been given by an informer first said they were Christians.' but then soon denied it, saying, in fact, that they had been, had been, but had ceased to be, some saying three years ago, others longer, and some as long as 20 years ago. All of these worship your image and the statues of the gods and curse Christ. They continued to maintain that the sum of their guilt or error lay in this, that it was their custom to meet on a fixed day before daylight and alternating with one another to sing a hymn to Christ as to God. They also bound themselves mutually by oath, not in order to commit any crime, But to promise not to commit theft, robbery, or adultery; not to break their word, and not to deny entrusted goods when claimed. After doing this, it was their custom to part from one another, then to meet again to share an ordinary and harmless meal. But even this they they had ceased to do since my edict, in which, in compliance with your injunction, I had forbidden closed societies. Stop there for just a moment. It's a lot. So here they are; they're being investigated. You know what he found? First of all, some of them did deny Christ, the ones that weren't really believers. There were some that were falsely accused. But others, and they, they just refused to do it, and so they were led away to their death. But here's what he discovered. What did they do? They, they were meeting on a fixed day. They had a certain day of the week, probably Sunday, right, where they would meet before the sun came up to regular, regularly to worship. And what did it say that they did? They would sing a hymn to Christ as to a god. In other words, we know from this Roman document that the Christians were meeting before sunrise, getting together to sing hymns and worship. You know what's interesting about that? Most of these people were probably slaves, servants. They couldn't take all of Sunday off. They couldn't meet at 11 a.m., and I don't know what they were thinking, not meeting at 11 a.m., but they couldn't. And so they were meeting before the sun came up. So next week, uh, we're going to meet before the sun comes up, okay? That's what they were doing. You guys agree to that? My daughter's shaking her head. She's like, "No, no, I don't know. I don't think it would be that bad. It's hot. We might save some on, some money on air conditioning." But listen, they they met before the sun came up, and then what did it say? They they were binding themselves by an oath, not in order to commit any crime. In other words, they weren't committing crimes, and this guy knows it. But to promise not to commit theft. In other words, they were trying to not be thieves, not to commit robbery. Not to commit adultery, not to break their words, not to, do, to deny and entrusted good. So, again, they're not going to steal anything or envy anything. After this, they just had a normal meal together. He knew it wasn't cannibalism. What did he, All these people, they, all these accusations were made. What were they found to do? Nothing but good. What was the punishment? It was death. Right after this, he says, I thought it all the more necessary then to find out what was true by putting to torture two girls who were called serving girls. But I found nothing but a depraved and enormous superstition. Consequently, I adjourned the investigation and now turned to you for advice. Those girls did nothing wrong. And he said, you know what, I still got to get to the bottom of this. I'm just going to torture some people. To find out what's true, and that's what he did. Isn't that terrible? That's where we find ourselves, this is what the same government, they were saying, be submissive and place yourself under the authority of the government as far as you can. I, I questioned some of them said that they had denied that they were continuing to meet together because there had been a law saying, hey, we're clo- no closed societies, you can't meet in secret. But I wonder if that was true and if they were still meeting together. Some of them obviously were. But we, we see that this was a, a hard account, wasn't it? Because next in 1 Peter, we're told not just we're to submit to the government, but we're, it tells servants, house servants or domestic slaves, to submit to their masters. Now the word servant there again means house servant or domestic slave. And, and while slavery was different back then, don't you ever wonder why it doesn't just tell them, why don't you go out and lead a revolt? Why don't you overthrow the government of Rome? Why doesn't he tell them that? Could they have done it? They couldn't have, could they? They were a small group. They were the, the lowliest of the low at the time. They couldn't just go out and overthrow everything. They had to live in the station in which they came in. They had no choice. They had nowhere to go. But at the same time, here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us about slavery. It says, Were you called by a slave, Do not worry about it. In other words, don't be ashamed of it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. He does tell them, Paul tells them, listen, if you can be a free man, be a free man. For what for who for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. You work for the Lord, not for that guy. Likewise, he who was called while free, it is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. Listen, I don't believe the Bible the Bible is condoning slavery. What it's doing is saying this is the the system that they lived under. And you had to bear up and somehow survive this time. And he's telling you, even then, submit to that that master, submit to the person over that house, over you, as though you're serving me. You do what's right. And so if they come up with any accusations, whether they're the government, whether that master, they need to know that it's not, they need to understand that you are doing right that you will bear up because it reflects on the church and reflects on Christ. Now, there's an example of this in the text because every one of us is going, I don't get it because we're all thinking my rights, okay? I am, and again, Paul did say, look, if you can be free, be free. We know that that's that's true. That's a better. It's better to be free than to be a servant. But I want you to see this in the text. Look down. We're in 2 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin or harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. In other words, if you suffer for being a criminal you don't get anything for that. What good is that? You deserve the punishment that you got. But if you rightly serve Christ and you suffer for his name, suffer for what's doing right, if you bear up patiently under this harsh treatment, it says you find favor or grace and mercy with God. God sees what happens in secret. He knows and he's compassionate and he's with you even in those moments. So, church, I will tell you that no matter what happens in the coming weeks and months, when people falsely accuse us and we continue to do what is right, we find mercy and grace with God. And we need to bear up patiently. And our first response can't always be to fight. Jesus said, Bless those that bless you, bless those that curse you. Jesus said to love our enemies. But more than that, we have an example in Christ. Look at verse 21. Because I know, again, a lot of us are thinking that. we just Why should we let them trample on us? Verse 21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. His reasoning here is he said, you can submit to the government. You can submit even to a harsh master. Why? Because Christ did the same thing. And he left you an example. It says that we would follow in his steps. That book, uh, the What Would Jesus Do? kind of movement based on a book called In His Steps comes from this verse, right? Jesus left us an example. And we always think, yeah, we want to follow his steps. But read carefully. It says he suffered for you. He, re- he was reviled. They spoke every ill thing that they could of him. They cursed him in every way they could. And he did not revile in return. They struck him, and he didn't fight back. And church, that's the hard message of this passage, isn't it? As they were scattered out as foreigners and aliens in a land where people lived in darkness, he told them, you have to follow the example of Christ. He didn't sin. He didn't deserve it. And by all rights, Jesus could have struck them down. We did sin. The truth is, we probably do deserve it. But he didn't. And the example that he said is, even when he could have struck them down, as he didn't. He backed off. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. He did not revile. He uttered no threats. You guys ever hear Christians making threats? Because you can. Instead, it says he entrusted himself to a judge who judges righteously. In other words, he knows this. God knows what happens. And if someone reviles you and they treat you as an evildoer and they do evil to you, will they get their just rewards? They will because God sees. And our prayer for them is that they would repent and find mercy instead because we all deserve that same punishment and justice. Now, we, I know I, I've said a lot. I know that we, we wonder sometimes how we fit in to this well, sometimes we think we're persecuted when we're not. Other times we think we live in the Garden of Eden, and we're confused sometimes even on how we view our own country. I'm going to say this this morning. I don't think we've suffered yet. And I don't think we've run into persecution yet. But will people try to shame you? Yes, and that is a form of persecution. They're going to try to shame you, make you feel ashamed, and it's okay to bear that up. It's okay to live righteously and say, you know what, I'm going to follow Christ. And know that he's in charge. I know we're we're going a little long here. I want to give you one more example from history today. At about the same time they called a man named Polycarp. And I love Polycarp's story. He was a kind of he was in Smyrna, which is one of the ancient churches of Revelation. It's right on the coast of modern day Turkey. And he was a big man. He started churches all over the place. And when we pick up his story. He's in his 80s. He's a frail old man, and they'd been trying to catch him for years. My history teacher said all the best stories, there's always a monk in some kind of back door or tunnel. And so they would come and get him, and there's always some, somebody there to lead him through a back alleyway and get him out. But they finally catch up to this man named Polycarp. And this letter that I'm reading from is a letter that was written uh, to the churches in that area to notify them of Polycarp's death. Here was here what it says. We write to you, brothers, concerning that which took place, with those who have given us witness unto death, in particular with the blessed Polycarp, who put an end to the persecution by sealing it, as it were, with his own witness. Cut by scourges until the anatomy of the body was visible, even to the veins and arteries they endured everything. Even the spectators pitied and bewailed them. The noble martyrs of Christ, "'attained such towering strength of soul "'that not one of them uttered a cry or groan. "'They proved to all of us that in the hour of their torture "'they were free of the body, "'or rather that the Lord himself stood by them and talked with them. "'In the same way they endured fearful torment "'when they were condemned to the wild beast. "'They were rolled over shells "'and were subjected to all kinds of other tortures, tortures. "'For the tyrant hoped to induce them to deny their faith "'by the prolonged torture, if that were possible.' The infernal tempter used many devices against them, but thanks be to the Lord he was powerless against them. The noble Germanicus strengthened the weakness of the others by his steadfastness. Fastness. He wrestled gallantly with the wild beasts when the proconsul tried to persuade them, saying that he had pity on his youth. He forcibly pulled the wild beast toward himself, wishing to be freed more quickly from this godless and unjust life. The whole mob, horrified at the heroism of the God-loving and God-fearing Christian sect, shouted, Away with the atheist! Get moving! Look for Polycarp! Only one man, a certain Quintus from Phrygia, who had just recently come here, turned coward when he saw the wild beast. He was the one who had voluntarily given himself up to the court, and had also persuaded some others to do the same. After earnest entreaty, the proconsul persuaded him to take the oath and to sacrifice. Therefore, brothers, we do not find it praiseworthy if some of us voluntarily give ourselves up. The gospel does not teach this. Do you guys hear that? As they were being going, this persecution was beginning, as they were being tried, as they were being thrown into the the Colosseum with the wild beasts, one guy gave himself up. That's not what it means by submit to the government, to just say, you know what? I'm just here, I'm just here, and let's, uh, yeah, I'm guilty, let's do it. No, they want to to live wisely. They want to live according to God's standard. But this man gave himself up and then gave up many others as well, and they're telling us, listen, that's not praiseworthy. That's not what the gospel teaches. But Polycarp, in contrast, when he first heard of all this, acted admirably by showing no fear. When they did find him, they arrested two young slaves, one of whom became a traitor under torture. Taking the young slave with them, the constable set out against him on Friday at evening, with a squadron of mounted men in their usual arms can you imagine this little old man they sent a whole squadron of mounted men to catch him late in the evening when they came upon him and found him in the upper room of a small cottage they were amazed at his great age and his calm dignity he immediately ordered food and drink to be served them and as they wanted and he asked them to give him a hundred give him an hour for undisturbed prayer and when the moment of departure came they seated him on a donkey And in this way, brought him into the city. It was a great Sabbath. Herod, the chief of police, with niceties, his father, rode out to meet him. They took him into their carriage, and sitting next to him, urged him by saying, What is wrong with saying, Lord, and Caesar, and sacrificing, and with the rest of it, and thereby saving your life? At first, Polycarp did not answer them. But when they did not leave him in peace, he said, I'm not willing to do what you advise me. When he entered the arena, There was such a tremendous uproar that nobody could be understood. When he was led forward, the proconsul asked him if he was Polycarp. This he affirmed. The proconsul wanted to persuade him to deny his faith, urging him, "'Consider your great age,' and all the other things they usually say in such cases. "'Swear by the genius of Caesar. Change your mind. Say away with the atheists.' Polycarp, however, looked with a serious expression upon the whole mob assembled in the arena." He waved his hand over them, sighed deeply, looked up into heaven and said, Away with the atheist!" But the proconsul pressed him further and said to him, Swear and I will release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he's never done me any harm. How could I blaspheme my king and savior? When the proconsul still pressed him, saying, "'Swear by the genius of Caesar,' he replied. "'If you desire the empty triumph of making me swear by the genius of Caesar, "'according to your intention, and if you pretend that you do not know who I am, "'hear my frank confession. "'I am a Christian. "'If you are willing to learn what Christianity is, "'set a time at which you can hear me.' "'The proconsul replied, "'Try to persuade the people.' "'Polycarp answered him, "'You I consider worthy, that I should give an explanation.' For we have been taught to pay respect to governments and authorities appointed by God as long as it does us no harm. But as to that crowd, I do not consider them worthy of my defense. Thereupon the proconsul declared, I have wild beasts. I shall have you thrown out before them if you do not change your mind. Let them come, he replied. It is out of question for us to change from the better to the worse, but the opposite is worthy of honor, to turn around from evil to justice. The proconsul continued, If you belittle the beast and do not change your mind, I shall have you thrown into the fire. Polycarp answered him, You threaten me with a fire that burns for but an hour and goes out after a short time. For you do not know that the fire which coming, fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment for the godless. Why do you wait? Bring on whatever you will. As Polycarp spoke these and similar words, he was full of courage and joy. His face shone with inward light. He was not in the least disconcerted by all these threats. The proconsul was astounded. Three times he sent his herald to announce in the midst of the arena, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. For the sake of time, we're going to stop. You guys hear what this man did? Even in the middle of it, he said, I've been taught to respect the authority of the government. I will answer you. He was trying to follow the laws. And there he was in the midst of the Roman Colosseum. Not perhaps the one we see today, but somewhere out there. Maybe it was the same one. They had many of those places. Walls all around. You think the gladiators, the wild beasts. You know what they did with Polycarp? They covered them up with flammable materials and set them on fire. And guess what? It says he didn't die very quickly. Didn't touch him. So they went and stabbed him with a spear. And he died. We don't live under that. Not a single one of us. And so we have to be careful when we start claiming our rights. And when we start getting uncomfortable and saying, well, I don't want to do this. And we get pessimistic about the world. If that guy can bear up with that with joy, brothers, I don't know what we're complaining about. We need to cheer up and be about God's business. Submit to the government. Be faithful. And even if it ever comes to that, God is faithful. He didn't abandon those believers. And even now, they're with him. And that's the promise we have. We're going to have an invitation now. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for The witness that we have coming from history of so many that have borne up under a government that we can't even imagine. And Father, we pray for the authorities in this nation. We pray that we would always have just laws and be able to live out our lives with peace and tranquility and dignity. Father, I pray even now that you would save those who do not know you in our government. I pray that we would make laws that were just. Father, I pray that when things don't go our way, God, that we would bear up under that torment, that we would be faithful, that when people come and make accusations against us, that in the end, they would be ashamed of our behavior. They'd be ashamed to see that we live with integrity. Father, I pray that you'd strengthen us as your people to help us to walk with you. And Father, if any need come today to place their faith in your hands, Father, I pray that they would. I pray that they'd come and speak with me and we could look in the scriptures together to call in the name of Jesus and be saved. And Father, if any of us need to repent, I pray that we would do so. That our hearts would be open just as the altar is open this morning. Father, help us to confess our sin to you and trust in you, the good and faithful creator. I pray this in Jesus' name.